We're on week two of our uh, series on worship. And just as a reminder, uh, and if you're visiting with us for the first time, so you understand where we are, we have been going through a study of the Gospel of Mark, but we are taking a break, sort of pushing pause on that, and we are taking um, five weeks, just five weeks, to look at this, um, this idea of worship. And what does it mean to worship? What is the true nature and purpose of worship from the Scriptures, and of course in the life of the church, and the life of each individual believer? And so we're on week two of that, and uh, we come out of this five-week series into then um, Palm Sunday and Easter. But what we're doing is something unique in that for these five weeks as we focus on the true nature and purpose of worship, we are taking a sort of sabbatical, or fasting if you will, from worship through music. You know, music is one of the most powerful ways that we can connect with God. In and of itself, it is kind of like a language, right? But it's one that God created. And we see music as a, an expression of worship all throughout the Old and the New Testament. A lot of singing, a lot of praising God through instruments and song. And so it is right and good that the church does that. Because we also know from Revelation as we look at when the, the, uh, the end of all things comes and Jesus returns that there will continue to be worship and in heaven for all eternity there will be singing and worship. And so it's good that we do that here. But sometimes it's important to take a break from even things that are really good to help us focus on what's at the heart of it all. So if you've ever fasted from food, you know that that is a big part of what we do. I mean, scripturally fasting can be an important spiritual discipline. If we have a time in our life, a season where we need to pray and and focus on something specific, and as the Spirit leads you to do that, um, many of us have, have experienced that and done that. And so this is a way for us corporately to fast from something that we really enjoy doing, and that is worshiping God through music. Because music itself is not worship, it is one way that we express our worship and our devotion to God. For worship itself is really just ascribing worth to our God, giving Him the worth that is due His name. And we love to do it through song. But we take a break from that, even if just to recognize that there are many elements that help us worship God, like fellowship that we just did, and hearing a testimony, hearing from God's Word, which we will do in a moment. When we pray, it is a way to worship. When we give, it is an act of worship. When we um, remember the Lord's sacrifice on the cross around the communion table, as we do that once a month, that is a sincere act of worship because we are giving Him the full honor and attention. And that is what we are called to do as a church. And so we will do that for the next five weeks and worship in other ways than music worship. But we come out of this series on the first week back with music will be Palm Sunday. And how fitting and appropriate is that? And uh, just remembering and celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then, of course, the week after that is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And so that's where we are, and we are on week two of that. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 4. And of course, in, in just a minute, it'll be up on the, the screen for you, and I'll read it. But if you are following along in your own uh, Bibles, it's John 4, and it's the first 24 verses. So John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, 1 to 24. It's a familiar story of Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well. And perhaps what we might not recognize is that this whole passage really has at its core the theme of worship. Jesus is teaching the Samaritan woman all about worship. But you see, Jesus came to bring change in every way, especially the way that worship is done. And so as we read through it, um, you'll see the whole story unfold, but we're going to focus on just the last few verses. But I will highlight some of the other parts of it because we're going to see that Jesus 
brings change. Everything changes when Jesus comes on the scene. From the moment of his birth, which had been prophesied from, uh, from ancient times, even through his death and resurrection, we see that Jesus changes everything. And so we're going to see the different aspects of, um, of relationship with God that changes. Things that change on, in, on earth because of Jesus. And most importantly, it is about worship. Jesus breaks through barriers and obstacles to God like He did on the cross. And we know that, that when He said it was finished and the temple of the curtain was torn in two and we then had direct access to what was called the Holy of Holies, which had only been in the middle of the temple where only the priests could go, we now as a royal priesthood can come to God, our Creator, because of the blood of Christ. And so that alone is why we should worship Him. But see, Jesus, because of what He did, He tore that curtain in two. He breaks down those barriers of, and obstacles of access to God. And that's what we're going to see in this passage of John 4. But you know, it can be difficult for us to accept change. You know, I think to some degree or another, we all resist change, don't we? I feel like as I, I get older, that I resist change more and more. And maybe you can relate to that. No matter what it is, I remember just the first time, and it seemed so silly that the um, you know the, the cable company changed up their t- their guide of channels, and I didn't know where to find my favorite channels. And I was like, that was really annoying, and I had to adjust to that. Well, this is too much change for me. But you know, you start to feel those things. But there's a lot of change that happens in life. There's change that happens just as we progress throughout time and there's changes that happen in the church and change can be good because as we allow God to change us and we recognize what he's doing then that is where we grow did you ever notice that that's where you grow closest to God is when he takes us out of our comfort zone did we not just hear that from the testimony of our brother that's when when God takes us out of our comfort zone we change the most and grow closer to him you know there's a great quote it says this perhaps you can it resonates with you but it says nothing is ever done until everyone is convinced that it should be done it has been convinced for so long that it's now time to do something else ever notice that sometimes it takes way too long to embrace that change Actually, I think the church has been notorious for that. Just resisting change, change, change. And for many years, we even talk about music worship. You know, um, throughout the history of the church, they resisted bringing in new elements, new instruments of worship. You know, there was a time in the history of, uh, of the evangelical church, especially when they resisted even bringing in drums for all kinds of reasons. Until one day... The church just said, I think we should bring drums. And then we're just sort of catching up. You know, there's an interesting story that, um, and it gives us some perspective on that. It was way back in the beginning of the founding of our country that some of the original founders who were seeking, um, you know, freedom from oppression, religious oppression, they came here to worship freely, but many of them did not believe that they should worship with musical instruments. And so for a long time, especially at the beginning of the history of our country, and there are some Christian brothers and sisters that still believe that, and they don't have instruments in their churches. But yet early on in the founding of our country, there were many Christians that did that, and, and they believed very strongly that worship should only be through singing a cappella, just singing melodies. And there was a story of a once where there were some Christians who decided they want to they wanted to have some music like they had back in the old land, back in England. And so they arranged for an organ, a beautiful organ, to be brought over from, the, from England. And so it got placed on a ship and came over. But when a lot of these other Christians heard this was happening, they got so incensed that one day that there would be musical instruments in the church. How sacrilege. That they formed a group to storm the ship when it came and reached the shores and docked. And they... They, they stormed the ship and they threw the organ overboard. Because how dare there be any instruments? 
And then we progress and then we get back into maybe 40, 50 years ago, not even. And there are people in churches saying, worship should only be with the organ. Do you see that? We kind of see the progression of things, but God changes. And so today, no, we're not talking necessarily about styles of worship and what that looks like in our church. We do that. We're going to do that in our, in our final week of this series. But I say all that to remind us that Jesus brings change. And as we read this passage in John, you're going to see it unfold. There was a lot of change happening that Jesus was bringing, especially as we see the Samaritan woman's reaction to what Jesus says and does. But I think that quote is appropriate, and maybe we should remember that, that nothing ever seems to get done until everybody's convinced, and by then it's too late, and then something else has to be done. You kind of feel that way about technology. You go and you buy the latest phone, but by the time you get around to buy it, it's like you're like three versions behind. <laughs> you ever notice that? But um, let me uh, give you some background and then we're going to read this passage together. And so Jesus had been traveling at this point in, in John chapter 4 and, and, um, and he needed to, um, to kind of get away from the crowds. And we see that often. And he didn't want to be put under that pressure right now, especially from the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And so Jesus was, um, was making his way to Galilee. But he did something that was so unique, is that he did not bypass Samaria, where the the dreaded Samaritans lived, as all of the good Jews would do, but he decided to go right through Samaria, breaking down barriers. You see, because back then we have to recognize and remember that, that, um, that the Samaritans were a remnant of the northern Jewish kingdom who after exile of the Jewish people, they actually stayed, they intermarried with foreigners, and they were led astray from the true worship of the true God, even to the place where they began to worship on a different mountain. It was called Mount uh, Gerizim. And so, they yes, they rejected a lot of what the Old Testament had to say, but they came up sort of with their own version of the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they were worshiping God in a very different way than God had planned. And they had gone astray. But they had been doing that for about 700 years before we meet this Samaritan woman. For seven centuries, they were worshiping God in this way. But for a thousand years, the Jewish people were worshiping God in Jerusalem in the temple. When Solomon, David, and then his son Solomon built the temple. So this had been going on for a long time, different kinds of worship, and we're going to see Jesus address that. But you see, the Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. They were considered half-breeds. And to the point where they would go out of their way if they were traveling to not go through Samaria. They had no interaction with them. So this woman was a Samaritan, but yet we also recognize she was a woman. And back then, the Jews especially did not interact with women, especially alone or in public. See, it's so unfortunate, but we need to remember the history is that women were looked down upon. They were second-class citizens, treated almost sometime like, um, like slaves. And so Jesus not only openly talks to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman, bringing amazing change to everything. And so he has this interaction with this Samaritan woman who had been, um, her and her people had been worshiping God uh, for 700 years in, um, in a different mountain, in a different place, apart from the true worship of God. And so that's sort of the background of where we are now. So as we read this together, just keep in mind um, how scandalous this would have been. And then when the disciples hear about this. So here's what it says in John 4. It's the opening of this scene. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Wearied, uh, sorry, was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That was about noontime. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy some food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband, and then come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband, Jesus said to her. And then Jesus said, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is even not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. An amazing scene, right? We're going to focus on just the last few verses there. There's so much that can be talked about living water and what Jesus is doing, but just want to highlight a few of those, but then we're just going to park for the remainder of our time on really just verses um, 19 through the end, 19 to 24, when he addresses truly, when he addresses worship. You see, um, in the first uh, section in verse 7 to 10, we see that Jesus is confronting This idea that there is division, there is animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And what I want to do is just highlight three things from this passage that are obstacles that Jesus is trying to tear down between us and God. And then he finally gets to even the nature and purpose of worship. And so first, starting in verse 7, 7 through 10 especially, He addresses this idea that the Jews would have no dealings with the Samaritans because he comes there and he's sitting at the well and she comes out to draw water and he begins to talk to her and she says, how could you be talking to me? First of all, I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan and this is not right. Something is different. And Jesus addresses that first and foremost. And so he begins to tell her, about the gift that he was coming to bring. And it was living water. And see, Jesus is offering this living water to a woman of Samaria. Now shouldn't that cause us to pause for a moment and reflect on the fact that Jesus loves everyone and cares for all of his creation. And so even a woman of Samaria, who no one should be talking to, 
A one who had been married five times and is now, Jesus points out, living with a man who's not even her husband. Someone who's got so many strikes against her in that society. Jesus speaks to her. Isn't that beautiful? That it's our Lord is going to about to teach her something so significant and important like worship, like worship, and he chooses to do that with her. And so the first thing, the first obstacle that he's showing us that he is tearing down is this division, this judgmentalism, even as I would say, racism of that time. Jesus could have gone around Samaria, but he chose to go right through. He could have kept going and just bypassed, but he chose to stop at that well, Jacob's well. A lot of history there that shouldn't be lost on us either. Jesus was tired. It was it said it was noontime. And about the sixth hour, that would have been noontime. And he would have been hot and tired from his journey. The disciples had gone off to get food and something to drink. And, and so he stops and he begins to talk to her and have a conversation. Of course, well aware of what that meant in their society. But see, I think one of the first obstacles to us worshiping the true God is when we judge others the way that they worship. And I think we fall, all fall into that. Now as believers, we know the call and the desire that we should have to not dehumanize people by treating them than less than we are because of where they're from, because of the language that they speak, because of the color of their skin, because of their ethnicity, their background, whatever that is, aren't those walls that we create? Aren't those obstacles to us bringing true worship to God? Yes, they are. See, every single person that you meet, everyone here, every person that you meet throughout your day, were created in the image of God. But see, that image was broken and tainted because of sin. But as those of us who now have hope and new life in Christ, we are then to bring that to the people in the world around us. Because they were all created in the image of God. And so therefore, we should not be creating any obstacles. There's enough obstacles created for us in the world in which we live, the one that the enemy has control of, that we should say, no, we are to be different. Are we supposed to look different, church, than the world around us? So maybe we start by not being judgmental towards others for any reason. And so in many ways, I think Jesus is teaching us that lesson for people that were despised by the Jews. And Jesus even goes on to say, hey, we worship the God that we do know. He's saying, you Samaritans, you're worshiping wrong. Yes, we were worshiping right according to the law, but we were missing the heart of it. And he gets to that later. But he says, no, there's a time coming when it's not going to matter where you worship or the people that you sit next to and what language they speak or how much money they have or don't have. And that is a picture of heaven as well in the coming kingdom. And see, Jesus is teaching us first here, when even by the fact of going and sitting at the, the well of Jacob and interacting with a Samaritan woman, that if we are to be, be worshipers, that he goes on to explain, worshipers of, in spirit and in truth, because those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks, then if that's what God is looking for, then first and foremost, we check our hearts. We say, where is our heart towards our brothers and sisters? That the people around us, have we put up walls between them because of who they are and where they've come from? You know, when we go to, um, one more thing on this. When we, uh, once a month here at Trinity, when we uh, remember the Lord's sacrifice corporately, something we should remember all the time, of course, but when we do that, what we call around the Lord's table, the breaking of bread, the Lord's supper, when we pass out the elements, when we do that, it is an act of worship. It's an act of worship because we solemnly remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But we are even called by the Apostle Paul to do that by checking our hearts first. Because as a form of worship, we are to first know where our hearts stand before God. And do we have 
a problem with maybe somebody sitting next to us or somebody in our life that we need to come before God and confess it. So here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15 about communion as an act of worship. It says he, he had first explained that there was issues in the church, that there were people that were not being fed, that they were getting together, that there were others that were coming just to eat and, and they were filling themselves and they weren't worshiping God properly even through this symbolic act of eating together. And so he goes on to explain the nature of what was going on. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Talking about the people at that time, and even some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, we're supposed to be different. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What Paul is saying is there, even when we come into the communion time, which is an act of worship, check your heart. We have a time, we allow for a time of that. A time of silence or just listening to music for you to reflect on where you stand with God. Is there any sin, any judgmentalism that you might have to a brother or sister or to somebody in your life that is creating an obstacle for you to worship God in spirit and in truth? It's really important. And so then he goes on, and the story goes on in verses 11 to 15. They're talking about the, drawing the water from the well. So Jesus says, okay, give me a drink. And then he explains through this idea of living water. And what does she say? He just said, you could have living water so you'll never grow thirsty. And her first reaction is, sir, she says, yeah, give me some of that water. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. How are you going to get that living water? So the first obstacle in this passage we might call judgmentalism towards others that inhibits our worship of God, inhibits the freedom we're supposed to have to worship God in humility. But the second thing that we might say is our circumstances. How often do we allow the circumstances of life to get in the way of bringing true worship and honor to God? See, if worship is ascribing worth to God, don't we all fall into that trap where when we don't feel like God's answering our prayers and those things are going all wrong in our life, we don't feel like worshiping God? Why should we give God worth when He's not doing what He should be doing for me? Don't we fall into that? And so our circumstances can even become an obstacle. I mean, her first reaction is a very earthly Focus reaction. He's offering living water and she's saying, well, how are you going to get that? You don't even have a bucket. Now, it's obvious, right? She didn't quite get it. But I think it's, it can be an illustration for us to see. See, she was hard for her to understand that there is a, a significant change, a paradigm shift in how people were about to worship the living God. And he was explaining to her in her interaction that it's no longer just the water, but there's living water. And see, she goes, well, how are you going to draw this water? I mean, here's a well, and she goes on to try to explain it. And then Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give can never be thirsty again. It'll be springing up, welling up. See, she's just concerned with how am I going to get that on her own strength? That sound familiar to how we might interact with God sometimes? God, how am I going to get what I need on my own strength? And we keep striving and, and leaning into it and going for it, and not understanding that what Jesus calls us to do is to humbly retreat and surrender. Say, God, you've done it all for me. How about you lead the way? You have living water, then you provide it for me the way that you need to. 
And see, not focus on the circumstances and the things going on in our life. Whether we have enough money or don't. Whether we even have enough money to, any money to put in the plate. Sometimes we come to church, don't we? We don't even feel like singing a song to Him. Or maybe we don't even want to go to church. Or get together with the body of Christ. And we know it's good for us, but there could be things going on in your life and you feel mad at God. God, you're not going to get my worship today. We can allow the circumstances to become an obstacle. And see, if we are to understand that our worship should go way beyond the issue of our circumstances, then we need to continue to be in God's Word. Because that's where we remember the nature of God. Last week we started this whole series by looking at the attributes of God. That He is omnipotent, all-powerful. That He's omniscient, He's all-knowing, He's omnipresent. He is all, you know, He's everywhere all the time. And we wrap that whole list up by saying that He is holy. All those being wrapped up in that. That He is holy. That He is the one that is set apart and pure and perfect and the only one who is worthy of our praise and honor and worship. But see, as we remember that Jesus came to change everything and tear down these obstacles and break through barriers, that we even can't let our circumstances get in the way. That regardless of what's going on, we still have that joy that should never be tainted or affected by our circumstances in life. And what that does is then that allows us to see God for who He truly is and say, God, You have commanded me to worship You. You have created me to worship You. So no matter what's going on, I will bring You that worship and praise because You are worthy. Not only for the things you have done for me and through Christ, but because of who you are. You know, um, we see in Exodus 20, 1 to 6, we see that there is that commandment. I mean, first, John, even John 14, 15. What does it say? John 14, 15. If you love me, what will you do? You keep my commandments. Right? So if we're supposed to worship God because we love him, in a way, this is saying, how do we worship God? Obedience. We can worship God in our lives by being obedient. And oftentimes we are, called, we are called to be obedient when we don't even feel like it. We feel like God somehow has let us down. What are we called to do? Be obedient. Exodus 21-6 starts to list the Ten Commandments. Do you know what the first commandment is? It says, And God spoke all these words, Exodus 20, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he starts to list the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. How about that? You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and do what? Keep my commandments. The very first of the commandments is, You shall have no other gods before me. Not even making, making a carved image. If you remember from that story when Moses went up into the mountain to receive the law from God, what was Aaron, Moses' brother, leading in the people to do? Down the base. Creating a false god, an idol, to do what? To worship it. You can almost picture it. As God is carving the law into the stone tablets, and the first one is being carved, you shall have no other gods before me, all the rest of Israel is creating a golden calf for them to worship. God commands us, moves us to worship regardless of our circumstances. So Jesus is breaking down that barrier of judgmentalism, of even circumstances getting in our way of worship. And the final one is where we park for the rest of our our time together. Verses 19 to 24. He then goes on to explain to the Samaritan woman. And she says, I know you're a prophet. 
She's basically saying, you just called me out for having five husbands, and I'm living with this guy. He's not even my husband. So if you knew that, then you must be a prophet. Or else my best friend is a gossiper. No, I'm just joking. And then it says this. Then she says, in verse 20, she makes a statement, then Jesus addresses it directly. She says, our father, she says, you're a prophet. But then she says, you know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's meaning Mount Gerizim where the, the Samaritan people for 700 years worshipped. Okay, remember the background. She's saying, but you say, meaning you as a Jew, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And she's almost like asking a question by making that statement. Like, well, you're a prophet, and so this is the way we worship. You worship that way. There's something going on. There's some kind of barrier, an obstacle here. What do you want me to do with this, Jesus the prophet? And Jesus then answers her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, like where the Samaritans worship, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. He's saying, you didn't even worship God, right? We were worshiping God according to the law. But he says, salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is actually here now, meaning because he was standing there, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. See, that's in contrast to which mountain to worship on. He says, true worshipers from this point on will worship God in spirit and in truth, meaning that's the most important thing. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. He said it again. And so let's just unpack that for a remainder of the time here. So if God was breaking down a barrier of judgmentalism and breaking through that that barrier of circumstances to worship God, Verse 19 to 24, I think, clearly show us that we can then create traditions and customs that can be good, but can then actually become a barrier to us bringing true worship to God. We're going to spend more time looking at that in detail in our fifth and final message on this series of worship. But what might that look like for you? If you think back and reflect on your experiences in church, being a believer, different churches maybe you've been a part of, and how you've worshipped God. Are there traditions that maybe you go through and that you do in, in church in your life that you don't even recognize it's a tradition, you don't even know why you do it, and it can become an obstacle? Now, of course, I'm not saying that all traditions are, are bad and unnecessary. No, they can be very good, and they can help us to remember. But it's when those things become rote and we just do it we just do it where we're not even understanding the meaning behind it then it becomes what god describes elsewhere and in isaiah and elsewhere in the psalms that he says your lips were close to me but your hearts were far from me just becomes lip service something to reflect on church do you show up on a sunday morning and just kind of sing because everybody's singing do you stand because everybody's standing and do you do the things just to, you're just kind of used to it? And you just do it and do it. You don't even know why you're doing it. Do you take communion once a month because that's the way you've done it for the last 50 years? Not even understanding that significance of the bread and the cup. Do you actually take those moments of silence to reflect on your heart before God and maybe you have an issue with somebody that you need to ask God for forgiveness of? Traditions can lead to legalism where we focus on the wrong things for the wrong reasons. See, what the Samaritan woman had always known was hindering her from learning something new. She said, well, I can't have this new living water you're talking about because I don't have a bucket big enough. How are you going to do that? And she said, okay, so uh, you're a prophet now and you call me out on this, but how about this worship thing, like which mountain is the right mountain? And he's starting to say, you need to think outside of that box of your traditions. Sometimes we can be like that. Customs and traditions can lead us and can hinder us from learning something new that God is leading us into. So maybe you have a sacred mountain or mountains in your life. 
For a thousand years, Israel worshipped in that temple on that mount. For 700 years, the Samaritans worshipped in their mountains. But Jesus is changing everything, and he's changing the way worship is done. Highly significant, because worship is all-encompassing. And he's choosing to teach that to a woman of Samaria. And Jesus says, it's no longer the place that matters. You know, if, we're not going to look at it, but if you went back to read in First Chronicles 17, if you want to jot that in your notes to read later, that's when we see the beginning of the building of the temple. When David, King David, has this great idea, a man after God's own heart, to build a temple, a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant, for God's presence. See, because he had just built this beautiful palace for himself, and he goes on to reflect, and it says it right there in the beginning of, of 1 Chronicles 17, he thinks to himself one day, now I have this great beautiful house, but God is dwelling in a tent made of canvas. And so he says, I'm going to build a temple for God. It's going to be the grandest temple. And so Nathan, David's like best friend, right, and sort of, you know, his brother in all things, is encouraging him, but then Nathan has a, a dream. And God speaks to Nathan and says, no, I don't want that. You need to go back and tell David that. I'm paraphrasing. But basically, um, God goes on to say in that passage, He says, you know what? Throughout my whole history with your people, through the judges and everyone else, I have never once commanded that my people build me a permanent dwelling place. He says, for my whole history with them, I've traveled with them. And they have brought me along, right, in the ark. And there's always been a tent. Wherever they pitch their tent, there was a place for me in the middle of their camp. And so it seems to be that God's desire wasn't for a permanent place where people would have to go and worship. Now, He allowed it. He allowed it. And God does that often, doesn't He? Might not have been His plan or His will. But He allowed it, and so a temple was built. He didn't allow David to build it. It was Solomon. Kind of like how He didn't allow Moses to enter into the Promised Land. It was then Joshua and the rest. But you see, God then allows this temple to be built. And so He says, okay, and, and then gives the instructions, and it's so big and it's so beautiful. But in a sense, we say, God didn't want that permanent place. Maybe because He didn't want that to become a tradition and a custom where they weren't worshiping during the week, but only on the Sabbath. He's teaching us the same thing today, church. He doesn't want us just thinking that worship means an hour and a half on Sunday morning. That worship is our lifestyle as believers and followers of Christ. That we should be worshiping in every aspect of our life. When we get together on a Sunday morning, whether you see it as the first day of the week or the the end of a very busy week, it's a place where we should be worshiping together through all that we do. But then we go out and then Monday through Saturday, we're worshiping God. Maybe it's through your favorite music on the way to work. You're worshiping God by loving your spouse. You're worshiping God by giving and maybe serving your neighbor who's in need. That is all giving and ascribing worth to God because you're doing it in the name of Jesus, right? That's the idea. And so perhaps those traditions can get in our way even thinking that this is a place. I mean, what's the first thing you think of when you hear the word worship? For most people, it's music, right? I mean, in a way, that's okay. We understand it because it's the, probably the most popular and powerful way that we bring worship to God is through music, especially in the church. Music is just one way that we express the worship that should be coming from our heart first. So this is a heart check, church. So, kind of like in the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve. It was this intimate relationship. But because of sin, they were driven out from that special place. And they had to go away from the presence of God. And so it's that idea that, you know what? As believers, to worship in spirit and the truth, we understand that we have the Holy Spirit within us. That we can worship wherever we are because that's where God is. Right? So Jesus explains to her, you, you, 
You worship what you don't even know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. He's talking about himself. But then finally we get to where he hones in. He says, God is seeking this kind of worshiper. Not one who judges others. Not one who is only worships when it fits their circumstances. And not one who is tied to a particular mountain or tradition. But he says, worship in spirit and in truth. Why? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Don't you know that you yourselves are now God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So we are now called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you think like that? Do you recognize that as part of your identity? See, we can't see the true worth of God if we're distracted by any of these things. So we read the Scriptures, we read our Bibles to get to know God, His attributes, His heart, and His will because He lives within us. And then God says, uh, Jesus says to worship in spirit and in truth. For our last few minutes together, I'll focus on that. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, first of all, we know that we are born spiritually dead into this world. That we are disconnected from God even at that moment of birth because of what we call original sin. Right? And so, the life of God is not in us because of the first Adam. And because of Adam and Eve and their sin, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Scripture tells us. John 3 says we must be born again. We cannot understand God nor worship Him without His Spirit within us. How does that Spirit come to dwell in us when we are born again? When we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing Him and trusting in Him for salvation. God desires worship from believers, genuine worshipers, to bring authentic worship to Him. So, we worship Him in spirit because we now have a spirit connected to God, but also because of how Jesus explains God is spirit. So we are to worship the one true God. Not the God, listen church, not the God that we make up. Not the, not the, the person we think is God, but what the Bible says is God and His attributes. That's how we worship Him in spirit. But we also are called to, to worship Him according to His standards. Not our own standards and see we're worshiping spirit but then also in truth we must offer worship according to the true nature of god you know we said earlier that last week we listed went through a whole bunch of attributes of god but the last one that we looked at was his holiness you know it's been said and pointed out that if you look into revelation and you see what worship is going to look like for all of eternity they were worshiping God around His throne. The elders, the creatures, right? The saints just worshiping Him. And what were they saying? You're powerful, powerful, powerful? No, they were saying, holy, holy, holy. All of His attributes are important. But holiness wraps it all up, doesn't it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, if you're one of those people that you're not so crazy about repetitious worship, just remember, for all of eternity, you will be singing, holy, holy, holy. Okay? So that's why we do that here, to get used to that. Okay? And to wrap it up, we see, look, Jesus is teaching the Samaritan woman and has that word for us this morning. That we are supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. So first, we have to be worshipers. We can't be worshipers if we are not born again. Through the salvation of Jesus Christ. And once we are, Jesus is saying, okay, here's the kind of worshiper that God is seeking. A true worshiper. You know what that means? That it's possible to be a believer and offer unacceptable worship to God. So let us, let us not also be um, led astray to think that just because we're a Christian, that everything that we do that we might call worship is actually acceptable to God. So you go back and read the story sometime of uh, Aaron's sons and what happened with them. I won't even mention that, but you can go back and read that. So, we worship as we pray, as we read His Word, the attributes of God, understanding it's His holiness. But we need to remain in tune with the Spirit. So the truth part is that we're worshiping the true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
according to his standards, but we're worshiping it in spirit because our spirits have been renewed and God is a spirit. So that's how we connect with him. It doesn't matter where it is, any mountains that you might have, sacred mountains, we're to let God tear those down, whatever that looks like, so we can worship God wherever we are in spirit and in truth. You know, it's the story of, of human history that we see in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It really is, in many ways, the story of worship. In the Garden of Eden, God was worshiping with them. They had this intimate relationship. They were worshiping the one true God. They worshiped Him by tending the garden and by walking with Him and loving Him. But they failed Him by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At Mount Sinai, when God was giving them the law, He said, have no other gods before Me. This is how you're going to worship Me. Worship Me alone. But what did they do? They put other gods before Him, even ones they created. In Jerusalem, God called His son David and then all of His descendants to worship Him alone as Father and King by walking before Him in faithfulness of heart. And time after time, the people of Israel failed by worshiping other false gods. But Adam and then Israel and David and all his sons, they all rejected God's call to worship. Where the first Adam remained silent and bowed before the serpent. The last Adam, Jesus, rebuked the serpent and refused to bow. Matthew 4. When Jesus being tempted in the desert, and He says, Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Where the first Adam failed, the second and perfect Adam, Jesus Christ Himself, was victorious. Let that be our motivation, to be found as ones who worship the one true God and no others in spirit and in truth. For this is the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, you have blessed us with a time together to be the body. The body of believers that are seeking to be worshipers. True, authentic worshipers. Who present our offering of sacrificial worship to you in spirit. Because you are spirit. And because we connect with you now through our spirit that have been made new in jesus christ and we also then worship you in truth because it is you and you alone we worship the one true god god would you help us to lay down any idols to lay down any crowns that may be weighing us down and god that we would put aside the judgmentalism that's in our heart that can create an obstacle between us and You, to bring You true worship. God, may we not be caught up in any traditions or customs that become something that that would be a wall or a, a barrier for us worshiping You in truth. And so God, just know that it is our desire as a church, here and now, to be found as such as those, worshiping You in spirit, and in truth. God, we want to be honest with You and vulnerable and authentic with You in in our prayer time and in our worship time this week. God, would You just meet us in a very unique and special way? Motivate us, challenge us, convict us through Your Spirit to worship You in spirit and in truth. Because we want to be found by You as bringing You that kind of worship that blesses You and that honors You and that you desire individually, but also as a church whenever we gather. Again, thank you, Father, for our time together. Now, God, go with us. Let your Spirit prepare the way for a week's worth of worshiping the one true God. In the matchless name of Jesus, we ask that. Amen.